Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. It's extraordinarily affirming for people to have a voice. It's part of their participation in community development. It's part of their ability to have a stake in in what happens to their lives. A founding father of our public radio system spreads the vision of community-based broadcasting overseas. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Although many public radio listeners may be unfamiliar with his name, they continuously hear the imprint of Bill Seemering, one of the guiding lights of public radio in America, the original program director of National Public Radio and the author of its lofty mission statement, Bill Seemering envisioned taking the microphone out of what he called the sterile studio and into the places where real people live and work. He fostered artistic creativity in using the rich medium of sound to tell stories. And most of all, in his soft-spoken Midwestern style, he advocated a broadcast system that would show common decency, a basic respect for individuals that could bring people together. One of the great values of radio is its ability to bridge. You can bond with people uh, who are similar, but then you can also bridge by going to different neighborhoods, going to places that you wouldn't ordinarily go. And that's what, what I believe that, that public radio could do. Bill Seemering and his colleagues at NPR developed a new sensibility and a new sound for radio. It was put to the test on the very first broadcast of All Things Considered from Washington on May 3, 1971, a tumultuous day when anti-war protesters converged on the Capitol. Rather than pulling in reports from all over town, we thought we might try to take you to the event, to get the feel, the, the texture of the sort of day it's been. A handful of police officers has succeeded in clearing at least half of this roadway, and traffic is flowing again. Now, how did you get here? I came by boat on the Potomac River. Is this your boat? Yes. It's a one-man kayak. Hearing from ordinary citizens, not just officials, was part of the idea. 
In the NPR mission and goal statement, Bill wrote that public radio will promote personal growth rather than corporate gains. It will regard individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate, and result in a service to listeners which makes them more responsive, informed human beings and intelligent citizens. 1970 was when we were talking about it and and writing that mission and it was historically a time when there was a lot of division racially. There were few, if any, uh, African Americans who were on television, news, or as journalists in print newspapers or on radio. Most of the information came with the, the white male voice of authority from New York or Washington telling us this is the way it is. And uh, we didn't hear from real people. We didn't hear hear from people that were affected by the news. And it was kind of an unnatural, artificial sound. So we wanted to also have a variety of perspectives on things, that there wasn't a single truth, perhaps. People are operating their lives, they're behaving in ways based upon their perception of reality. And it may be very different one from another. And it was really important to hear that, hear those differences. And it was important to hear people that had been marginalized, that were minorities, who were only seen in the news when there was crime stories and things of that nature. So um, it was... Those were some of the things that we incorporated. So I said in the mission statement that it would speak with many voices and many dialects, that it would reflect the pluralism that is America. I know that giving giving people access, giving them Mm -hmm. a voice has, has been so important to you. How does giving people a voice make a difference? It's very empowering. And they don't feel shut out. They feel that they are able to participate, that their views are heard by somebody. I've seen this overseas in my work, in uh, wherever I've gone, in developing countries in South Africa, Mozambique, uh, Mongolia, Eastern Europe. Because radios are portable, inexpensive, and can be operated without an electrical outlet, radio broadcasting is the dominant medium in many parts of the globe. But due to economics and government control, radio programming in many lands has been one-dimensional, presenting state-run newscasts and homogenized selections of music. In extreme cases, radio has been used by governments to stir up ethnic hatreds and violence. But an opening occurred for more community service-oriented broadcasting in the 1990s, following the collapse of the Soviet Union and the demise of apartheid segregation in South Africa. Allowing local culture to be heard and enjoyed, as on this broadcast from a community-run station in South Africa, was a way Bill Seemering hoped to enhance citizen involvement in South Africa's newly egalitarian society. He was hired by a private foundation, the Open Society Institute, to promote grassroots radio around the world. Lessons learned while pioneering public radio in the United States could now be shared overseas. 
and he found receptivity at the broadcasting authority of South Africa's new government. The first priority they gave was to community radio because they felt that would serve the interests of the new democracy best. And they gave no licenses the first year to for-profit radio, which I thought was interesting. I went there first in 1993 to meet with a group of people that were interested in community radio as an idea and also interested in transforming the state broadcasting, South African Broadcasting Corporation, into one that more clearly reflected the diversity of the country. So it was the idea, part of it was the, the slogan of giving a voice to the voiceless, that, you know, in the townships they never had a voice of their own, and here was a chance for them to create their own community radio station. So there was a little adjustment there in the beginning when some people had said, well, everyone has a right to be on the radio. Um, I said, well, I think everyone has a right to expect something worth listening to on the radio. <laughs> uh, not everyone has something worthwhile to say. Uh, so you don't just put a microphone in the market and just let people come up and say whatever they want. Because the listeners also were very responsive initially, and they said, gee, that host isn't very good. And so they quickly realized that the quality of the programming had to be good. The economic crisis in Zimbabwe has brought with it untold suffering and misery among the ordinary people of that country. Community radio can serve a wide variety of functions to provide news and dialogue on important issues, to offer music and other culture, and if genuinely rooted in local participation, the station itself can become a forum for directly addressing serious problems. Bill Seemering. There was a vicious, uh, violent dispute between different taxi drivers and um, in, in this one township. And so they brought the taxi drivers in to the station and said, you know, all right, community, what do you want them to do? How do you want them to run their business here? And so they, they resolved the conflict there. There was a potential school strike that the station got wind of. And again, they used their impartiality to mediate the dispute. When I asked the manager what he felt was his greatest success, he said, resolving the school strike before it happened. In Kosovo, a very different place, there was a station that called Radio Plus, and it's in Pristina. They tell the listeners that they're really an important part of their programming. They rely on them a lot, and um, they have a number of call-in programs. And during one of the call-in programs, a listener said, you know, there are 30 orphans in the hospital that no one is caring about at all. And so right on the spot, they formed a committee to help them. And they raised money, they brought in clothes and toys and what have you. And so when I asked him what his greatest success was, he said, my greatest success was when the doctor from the hospital called and said, tell your listeners we have enough. The orphans are taken care of. And you see, they were using it to create community in that sense. They had a support group for families whose husbands were being held in prison by, in Serbia. So they, that was another kind of using radio in that creative way.
in uh, Sierra Leone, there's a very entrepreneurial and uh, extraordinary man named Andrew Croma, who has a couple of stations, one in a provincial capital called Bo, which I visited. And he provided voter education and uh, for, the, for the last election. And there was a greater turnout in his listening area than any other part of the country. In addition, he has an investigative uh, program called Mr. Owl. And Mr. Owl exposes corruption of various kinds, where a government a worker is using his official vehicle for a taxi, or where in one case um, a policeman was helping a illegal diamond merchant get through uh, the border crossings to smuggle diamonds away. Um, and they will broadcast some of these things as they're happening. Um, there were a number of abuses of the police where they would perhaps take a woman prisoner out and uh, use her as a prostitute and uh, keep the money. As a result of calling these uh, abuses to public attention, the police department created a community affairs unit. And, and there were other authorities realized that the police needed more money because they were doing this kind of stuff because they weren't getting paid enough. So here again is a station that is actively engaged in improving the community. With Andrew Croma in Sierra Leone, he actually exposed some problems with the electric company that had been bartering with him for uh, airtime. So he would put on advertisements for the electric company and uh, service announcements and, his, and get the, the service for nothing or a reduced rate. So when he exposed uh, some wrongdoing of the electric company, they said, you owe us $2,500. <laughs> Fortunately, he happened to be in America and uh, was on the public radio program Fresh Air and talked about this. And a listener heard this and said, I'll help him, and uh, gave that money necessary for him to pay that electric bill. It's nice when it comes full circle like mm -hmm. that. There are wonderful examples where soap operas are used to convey social information. Um, and the Search for Common Ground, that is a U.S.-based organization, has studios in Burundi, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, where they've had things on health and peace. So, for example, in Sierra Leone, it was through these programs that they went out and talked to the rebels. The government radio would never talk to the rebels. They would say they they shouldn't be heard on the radio. But in order to have some peace, they felt it was necessary to do that. They would have young youngsters that had been in the in the rebel camps who had escaped talk directly to their former captors and say, come in, it's safe to come in now. Tell their friends, you know, I'm here, you can come back. Um, so that kind of direct appeal worked very well. So it was kind of a safe way to deliver the message. Yes, and there was peace then. I mean, there has been peace. And did people come, come back some in? Some did, yes. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of trying to resolve conflict. How do we do this? 
I visited their studio in um, Burundi, where they had Hutus and Tutsis working together, creating programs. These, of course, were the warring factions that gave rise to the terrible massacres. Genocide of, in Rwanda, in, in nearby Rwanda, yes. And the stations in, in Burundi were created as a result in a reaction against the hate radio in Rwanda, where they actually told people to go out and kill. It was, I think, the only time that I know of where radio was used for that, for genocide, really, in such a horrific way. So in Burundi, they said, we want radio that will be for peace and reconciliation. And so in spite of the fact that the Hutus and Tutsis had been at war with each other and were still having uh, battles in the countryside, on the radio, you could hear them covering the same story, reporting it together. They would send out a Hutu and Tutsi together, and they would both come back to tell the story. And there were radio dramas that showed, again, how Hutus and Tutsis can work together in ways that they might not be on the ground doing this quite yet, but how to resolve differences that they had. And there were there's a women's program where the women were actually preparing um, gardens and homes for returning refugees, again, Tutsis and Hutus working together. The women were working together while their husbands were off someplace else fighting each other yet. So the, the radio used, was, was a catalyst to create, help create about 400 women's groups around the countryside where they could, <clears throat> where they could work together. Thousands of miles away, a man pulls water out of a deep well in the mountains of Mongolia's Gobi Desert region. Mongolia is a landlocked northern Asian country bordered by China and Russia. Long under Soviet rule, it has now emerged as an independent nation with free elections and a budding system of community radio stations. Among the world's oldest countries, Mongolia is one of Bill Seemering's favorites, owing to its hardy people and magnificent, unspoiled scenery. We started working in the countryside, in the small provincial capitals. So I did a workshop on how you start a, a station, and I talked about South Africa. And at first, people kind of looked at askance, saying, Africa? What can we learn from Africa? And after they heard the story, about how it worked there, they said, yeah, we can relate to that. We've been marginalized. We don't have a voice of our own. We don't have many resources. So now there are perhaps a dozen local stations there, not all supported by the foundation, but the foundation gave them money for equipment and three months operating costs, and then they're on their own. And some of those stations are operating on one or two thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's, it's uh, remarkable. When the Open Society Institute began supporting fledgling community radio stations in Mongolia, it faced a reality. The tradition of free expression and freedom of the press, at least as we know it in the West, 
is a new experience for the people of Mongolia, where democracy has just arrived. So what are the greatest challenges for these new broadcasters? Well, they're operating in situations that are frequently highly politicized, and they, they must have uh, sound journalistic principles so they don't get buffeted about or co-opted by special interests, I think. Um, they need to learn about uh, how, to, how to be inquisitive in a way. I think a journalist must have a curious mind to pick up stories and to have enough curiosity to, to see it to the end. When, when people are used to just kind of the state news, there's not much room for curiosity. There's not a, a tradition of going out and, and doing uh, a story in the market. So did you meet people who were eager to break through into a new way of more open communication? Yes. They, they listened very attentively, and then they, they went about doing it their way, which is, of course, as, as they should. I never tell people what to do. I say, here are some tools that you'll need to run a radio station. Uh, here's how you organize a program schedule. Here are principles of journalism ethical principles you need to follow to protect yourself. And then they create it themselves. So they, you know, here's the hammer and nails and saw, and now you create your own structure and make it appropriate. And that's what we always try to work with people on, is what is appropriate for Mongolia, for local radio. It's different than South Africa. It's different than Sierra Leone or some other place. But it's, it's yours, and they, they make it theirs very much. Uh, there's a station called Gobi Wave, and they have a program where they ask the listeners, what's the news? And the listeners will call up and say, well, this is what's happening where I am. There are some goats and sheep in my yard, and I hope the owner will come and get them. <laughs> uh, or they have another program call in where people ask the station to find out answers from the government about some question. The governor is on the air twice a week with a half-hour live call-in program where he answers questions. So he's accessible. Um, they also have uh, some wonderful inventive programs. They have one called Love's Guide, where if you are kind of a shy person, you call in and describe yourself and the kind of friend you're looking for. Uh, there's another one where they call in, and they may be, they may be kind of sweet on somebody, but they're too shy to, to say to, to approach that person. So they will, again, um, write kind of a love letter uh, to this person. And if you say, I think, I think she's writing to me. So there's a correspondence that people eavesdrop on. So, for example, there was uh, a man in prison that has taken up a correspondence with his lawyer's daughter. <laughs> so it's kind of a secretive thing, but it's broadcast. <laughs> Does the lawyer tune in? 
Uh, I think he might have gotten wind of this. <laughs> <laughs> Back when you wrote NPR's mission, you were reacting to what you called the artifice and hype in so much of the commercial media, a, a trend that doesn't seem to have gone away. And you've said that the challenge is to make people want to hear what they need to know. How, how do you see that challenge? I think that remains the challenge. It's the challenge for the producer and reporter to tell the story in an engaging way, to make it compelling so that people really want to listen to it. It's the same problem that we talked about overseas, where there's incredibly important health information that people need. Um, they need to know how, how to live with returning rebels <laughs> who had been uh, terrorizing a community, and now they're coming back. How do you deal with that? Here in the United States, we don't have such extreme kinds of issues to deal with. But nonetheless, we do need to have a sense of community here. And I think uh, some of the public radio stations could do more with local programming to give a sense of community, of connecting, of taking the listener to sections of the city that they, don't, that they may just drive by or maybe not even that, to get beyond stereotypes. I think we still need to do that with people that may be different in some way from ourselves um, so that we don't develop these walls or barriers between people. We only kind of break through that glass that may separate people. So what's the most effective way using the medium of radio, of public radio, for uh, breaking down those barriers? I think the personal storytelling is one way, oral histories, the kind of work that some of the youth radio projects are doing where young people will take the listener to a neighborhood, to their neighborhood, that isn't the public radio typical neighborhood, and hear what their life is like. Those are very compelling and artistically produced. The first-person account. Yes. Getting back to what radio is, intimate, personal, imaginative. For you, what does it mean to listen, to be a listener? It means to really focus on the individual that's talking. To really be empathetic and put yourself in their position as much as possible. And to listen for, consciously and unconsciously, but to listen for all these subtleties of voice that they are giving you. There's a, there's a rich there's a richness there if we could but hear it closely without our own filters. So we want to kind of remove our preconceptions and listen to the heart of the matter. So we're listening both 
consciously and unconsciously, perhaps, as we experience music and, and other, other things, you know? But it's a matter of paying attention. Harder and harder to do in, in this world where we're bombarded by so many stimuli. It is. For the quiet voice, the thoughtful voice, the considered voice and opinion is harder and harder to find and more and more necessary. Bill Seemering. He will further the effort to spread community radio worldwide with his new organization, Developing Radio Partners, based in Philadelphia. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to Tish Valva of Chicago Public Radio. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment with community radio visionary Bill Seemering is Humankind Program number 78. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.